there are some visitors here today, and uh, just so that you can phase into this series, we're doing Route 66, which is 400 years of the King James Bible in our country and culture, and 66 books, God's Word, and we are trying to do that in eight weeks. And now we've come to the, what's called the wisdom of the poetic books, and within the next uh, half an hour, or even less, we shall look at all of that very briefly. Uh, Jesus, the wisdom of God. We're looking at, uh, for the most part, the book of Proverbs, uh, and pose a question immediately. What makes a proverb? What makes a proverb? Three suggestions. Is it a sermon encapsulated in a few words? That would be nice. Is it something to chew on? Like we say that you are given a, um, a proverb or a, or a statement and you want to reflect, you want to chew on it, you want to think about it and take time to reflect, look at it from all perspectives. Or is it wisdom that is to be applied in everyday life? It's not a case of us saying that it's going to make us clever, but it is going to make us wise in the way we live our lives. Proverbs are a universal way of people, cultures, of all societies throughout the whole world, the way that they communicate. Some that I'm going to give you now are as familiar as, uh, well, let's test it. Uh, a stitch in time. Thank you. What is it saying, though? What is it actually saying? Sorry? Exactly. Don't procrastinate. It's, uh, I need this because I procrastinate terribly. So it saves you a lot of hassle and trouble if you do things when don't put off today what you can. It's the same thing, isn't it? Okay. Um, a bird in the hand. What are we saying? What are we actually saying? Who's... Right. Uh, some people are not. Okay. See, that's the point, isn't it? It says, uh, hold on to what you've got. If you think you're going to get more, let it go. You end up with nothing. So, that's... Um, let's have another one. Birds of a feather. And why? What are we saying? What is it saying to us? Okay, we haven't got time. But you see the point, don't you? You see the point? You, do, you give a proverb and you need time to reflect and think. Okay, let's get a bit biblical. Where there is no vision, what is it saying? In the NIV it actually says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Having a vision for your marriage, for your life, for your work, for your family, for your church. Otherwise, you are a drifter. And there are spiritual drifters who come to church quite a lot. And therefore, having a clear vision of what I believe, of what I'm doing, of where I'm going. And that's why, of course, we should expose our hearts and minds to the Bible. So a survey, just with that sort of quick example and introduction of the books of Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Songs of Songs are often called the poetic books. And this poses two questions or two comments. Okay? The first is this. Hebrew poetry, as we read it in the Bible, is not the same as Western poetry. 
It doesn't rhyme. Poetry that doesn't rhyme for some people isn't poetry at all. Well then, if it isn't rhythmic poetry, what is it? Well, it's got structure. And stay with me, please. I can t- I've been in this pulpit long enough to know when some of you just sort of switch off or drift off. That is very naughty. And it is not my fault. So, poetic structure called parallelism. If you think of a single railway track, two lines running in parallel, that is not complicated. So you get two lines of thought running together. So this sort of continuous, similar line of thought that's called parallelism, that is Hebrew poetry. And we're going to illustrate this now to see how it is intended to teach us, to provoke us to think outside of our familiar experience thus far. And what we have is three main categories of this parallelism, often called um, couplets, two thoughts together. And the first is to contrast. You make a statement, and the statement is made to contrast that. Or there is one that is to compare. A statement is made, and you compare something else with it. Or a statement is made, and you complete it. You finish it off. Now, we're going to do this exercise very quickly. So, use your Bible, and let's just see. We're staying in the book of Proverbs. We're not going too far, and it's not difficult. So, you see what we are doing? We're looking at this parallelism, which is called the poetic literature. And you've got two ideas placed each or next to each other. For example, let's look at chapter 13 and verse 10. Just very quickly. Just to see. I want, I want you to get into this now, and then you can go home and apply it to yourself. This is one example of a couplet. Okay? Proverbs 13, verse 10. Pride only breeds quarrels. The proud person who is never wrong and never says sorry creates enormous difficulty in family life and church life. Pride only breeds quarrels. But, you see the contrast, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. There is something about a know-all that is very unsavory, isn't it? Okay then. That is uh, an example of contrast. We'll stay now in chapter 13 and, and uh, very quickly to see one other thing. With this proverb in contrast, there is a, a word that turns it, a pivotal word, okay? And it is but. And you can trace it. Where you see the but, you'll see it gives you a contrast. It's very important. Okay, look in, we've seen that already in Proverbs 13, verse 10. Look at verse 18 of the same chapter. He who ignores discipline comes to poverty and shame. But, see the contrast. But, whoever heeds correction is honored. What do you make of verse 24. In fact, if you were to look at the whole of chapter 13, you'd see the majority are what is called contrastive or 
Proverbs in contrast. What do you make of verse 24? He who spares the rod hates his son, his offspring. But he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Uh, you think of our society, which is very low on discipline. So it's teaching us something, isn't it? It's making us think again that actually discipline and correction is not always harsh. And indeed, the lack of discipline from the book of Hebrews says the child is almost illegitimate. It is that strong. But what is loving discipline? Well, as much to teach us, hasn't it? Okay, let's move on to the next one. Um, what we can call the completive, the, the, the proverb that completes a statement. Turn to chapter 14, so for sake of time, and verse 10. Now you will notice it isn't but the word. What you have here is and or so. Okay, that completes it. Right? Chapter 14, verse 10. Each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. Now it's a teasing one and it says, what is it saying? Look at uh, verse 13. Even in laughter, the heart may ache and joy may end in grief. What do you make of that? You know, sometimes people say, crying, laughing, they're pretty close together, aren't they? Look at chapter 16 and verse 3 for the, another example of this completing. 16 verse 3. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. But go to the Lord with your plans already sorted out and ask him to ratify it. Your plans will not succeed, which is the danger of what we can do. Do you see what it's doing? It's teasing us. It's making us think about how we live, decisions we make. Look at verse 20. Whoever gives heed to instruction prospers and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord and many more. Okay, so we've looked at these proverbs in contrast. We look now as they, then they are completed. And lastly, let's compare. These are comparing, all right? Let's look at chapter uh, 15 and verse 16. So now we're comparing, the, and the words now are, that will help as you make this comparison is better than or like so. There's those little words you will see that they are the key that opens up as we compare. Okay? Chapter 15, verse 16. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth and turmoil. Better than. And it's making a comparison. Can you see it? Uh, look at verse 17. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. A great banquet that's lavished and people who hate each other. What would you want? Well, you see the point. It brings you into the whole encounter 
of our experience. And just finally, 16 and verse 19. Finally. Better to be lowly in spirit among, and among the oppressed than to share the plunder of the proud. Think about it. Well, there are hundreds, literally hundreds more, but that gives you an idea now what we are talking about when we talk about the poetic uh, literature, the poetic books of the Bible. And that's just one simple example. So that's the first thing. And the second thing that we say is this, that Hebrew poetry does not rhyme. But secondly, poetry should never be analysed. There is, if you like, almost the, the paralysis of, analyst, of, of, of analyzing because poetry is to be enjoyed. We miss the beauty of Old Testament poetry when we scrutinize every word, if we do. The wisdom books are not, therefore, instructive manuals. If you've read an instructive manual, maybe you've bought a television or a DVD or something, or, and you've looked at the instruction. It's got all sorts of languages, and then you have to see how it fits together and so on. And that isn't always very helpful either, not, not to me. Um, poetry is not like that. Let me use an illustration. Poetry is not for information as inspiration. Not to explain, but to experience. It is very subjective in that sense, okay? For example, if you asked a poet to teach you how to swim, you would probably drown. Now, it's not wrong to be poetic. And maybe a poet could speak with great meaning about the beauty of swimming. But be sure he knows how to swim. Or, take for example, if as I have next week to have an MOT on my car, that I choose a poet to do it. I don't think my car would be very safe. Now, it isn't that poetry is wrong, but in its context it doesn't mean anything. And sometimes we use the Bible in the wrong way. And some people who have a hidden agenda have had a field day on making the Bible look silly when they take it out of context. Somebody's rightly said, a text without a context is a con, and it is. It leads you astray. But poetry is for experience, for enjoying, for inspiring. And I want to give an example. For those uh, who live in the village have uh, read the Crendon Crier, a great um, example of... Um, journalism, will know that on the 13th of May, sorry, the 15th of May to the 15th of June is National Smile Month. It is an occupational hazard for me to look at faces, because sometimes even when we're enjoying ourselves, we can look miserable. And I know it's a very subjective thing because we're all very different. However, this... Um, National Smile Month has been run for the last 35 years, and you wouldn't be surprised, it's sponsored by dentists. <laughs> There's always something, isn't there? Always. But the Smile Factor uh, campaign, www.dentalhealth.org, you can look it up yourself, you'll see the things that they say. But then the article goes on to say this, smiling changes our mood. 
Smiling is contagious. Smiling relieves stress. I mean, look in the mirror sometime and think horrors. Smile. Smiling boosts your immune system. Smiling lowers your blood pressure. According to the medics, smiling releases endorphins. In other words, smiling is a naturally induced drug. It's within you. Smiling helps you stay positive. And all those things have been issued by the Aylesbyville District Council Area Health Authority. Well, and I picked up this poem. So there you are, I've given you some of those things. But what am I going to do now when I read this poem to you? And what message are you going to have? It's not an apology, it's not particularly good Poetry, but that's not the point. Don't analyze it. Smiling is infectious. You can catch it like the flu. When someone smiled at me today, I started smiling too. I passed around the corner and someone saw my grin. When he smiled, I realized I'd passed it on to him. I thought about the smile, then I realized it's worth a single smile like mine could travel round the earth. If you feel a smile begin, don't leave it undetected. Let's start an epidemic quick. I change this and get the church infected. Well, poetry does things like that. But that's not Hebrew poetry. Or sometimes poetry can induce a picture. The best poets can give you pictures. I give you Robert Burns. And if some of you haven't been looking at poetry for a while, take time out. Read some lovely poetry. Let it inspire you with with fresh thoughts and clear visions rather than the sheer ravages of work, 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 work or television, television, television. The danger of being fed with a diet of banality is that we often don't appreciate the beauty and the wonder. Well, Robert Burns, the context, he'd spent too long in the public house His past experience that he had incurred the wrath of his wife. And he's coming home. And this is what he wrote. Here is his wife. He is inebriated. And from past experience he says, There she sits like a gathering storm. Nursing her wrath to keep it warm. Now you know what he's saying, don't you? Nothing, he says, is going to appease her. But you see what he's inducing? Poetry can do that. Or did you know, for example, that... um, And I want to ask you a question, and uh, Norman's holding back here. There was a a national um, uh, survey, for want of another word, of what was the greatest poem of the last century. And I wonder if any of you would know. It's public, uh, it was uh, public opinion sent into the BBC, I think it was done. Would you know what, have a guess? Vanessa, you're thinking. No? Have a guess? Quick? Yes. Sorry? You're a good girl. It is. Kipling. Rudyard Kipling's If. Okay. Sorry? I thought she did. 
Vanessa, you shouldn't sit away in the balcony hiding yourself from me like that. That's right. But listen to the. I, we, for the sake of time, we, we can't say too much. But listen to to this poem because of what it instills within us. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you and make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating. And yet, don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster. Triumph and disaster, he calls those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken. Twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools. Or watch the things you gave your life for. Broken and stoop to build them with worn-out tools, and so on. Do you see what it's saying? Building a sense of, of, of morality and the rightness, and indeed Kipling would be strongly influenced by the, the Christian gospel. It does something to you, to inspire you and to be a better person in every way, and not to, to react to other people or give as good as they give to you, and so on. Well, those are just simple examples of um, what we have in terms of um, poems. Very different to the Hebrew. They're not rhythmic. But nevertheless, they do the same thing. They inspire us and challenge us. And here is the danger. Let's we'll come back then to uh, Proverbs chapter 8 as we look at this in a little more detail then conclude. Here is the danger. We can force biblical poetry into a sort of a sterile, emotionless theology that is but a straitjacket and we miss the point. Last Sunday evening when I was preaching on uh, Acts 16, I was saying if we could, next time when a Jehovah Witness comes to knock on our door, use this approach, it would be very helpful. And you know, the following week, as I was preparing this sermon, two uh, Jehovah Witnesses from Tame were knocking on my door. Isn't that extraordinary? And what I'm saying is this, that we can sometimes use the Bible and miss the point. We can do it with poetry, and we can do it with theology. And, uh, okay, one of the benefits of reading a bit of church history, and I, this is what I did with them. I listened to them, and I said, now, if I could just say this to you, in the fourth century, all the things that you were saying to me now on my doorstep was thought through by one of the church fathers, um, who, uh, his name was Athanasius. And people thought like this. If the body which is corruptible is true of the Lord Jesus, then surely he couldn't be divine. And the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in the 
true deity of Jesus Christ. And Athanasius was on his own. He was isolated by the theological world of his day. And he said this. It's a very beautiful phrase. It comes from the 4th century. And I was saying to them, you know, this was thought through in the 4th century. And here you are now in the 21st century saying, bringing up this old heresy. Which isn't a very nice thing to say to them, but it's true. Athanasius said this. He, Jesus, became what he was not human, but didn't cease to be who he was, divine. They would say, in his becoming, he ceased his full deity. And Athanasius said, no. He is the eternal Christ, who is the Son of Man, who came into this world, and he is God incarnate. Now, isn't that interesting? It's not being clever. All that he's saying is that sometimes the way sincere people, and these were two very sincere ladies who were on my doorstep, and yet to miss the point. And if we do it with poetry, we can do it with theology. We miss the point. So let's come to the conclusion, the application. In Proverbs 8, 32 to 36 is a picture of the Lord Jesus. Let's look at this as we conclude. I say to you, it's a picture of him, Jesus, the wisdom of God. Just to say three uh, very brief points. Verse 32 to 33. Now then, my sons, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not ignore it. Now as the gospel comes to you, Take it to heart. Believe what he says to you. Here, if you like, is the Lord Jesus speaking to you. Words of wisdom. Words of salvation. And it's as if he says, listen up. Listen up. And listen up and what? Be blessed. Be blessed. And know his joy and his grace and his blessed assurance. You see, it's a gospel word. He calls us to listen. And secondly, look in verses 34 and 35. He gives us an opportunity to respond. He challenges us to listen. We are rational people. We're able to stand back and think and and, and work it out for ourselves. But we don't sit on the fence, do we? No, no. He calls us to listen and he gives us an opportunity to respond. Now, I hope this morning you will respond. That is, if here is the Lord Jesus long before his coming into this world, he's speaking. And what is he saying? Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorways. And here it is. What is he saying? Whoever finds me, finds life. That's what Jesus says. Now, of course, the Old Testament, it could be a picture of the high priest coming out of the tabernacle where the sins of the people have been forgiven and the scapegoat has been said. Yes, there are many other pictures, parallel, if you like, the way we've been thinking. But nevertheless, here is Jesus. A wonderful picture of Jesus. And interestingly, 
If that's a picture of him speaking before he came into this world, here is a picture of him when he returned to heaven, speaking to the church that had become formal and legalistic and spiritually moribund. Here I am. I stand at the door knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come into them. I will sup with them and they with me. It's the same picture. It's the same Lord. It's the same gospel. And it ought to be the same response. He calls us to listen. He gives us an opportunity to respond. And we must do that. To discover for ourselves a saviour. It may well be a picture of the high priest at the entrance of the tabernacle. But it's also a picture of the sovereign Lord Jesus. Saying here I am. If anyone hear my voice, listen to me and open the door and respond, I will come in with them. And lastly, and I suppose we have to have this, he warns of dangers to avoid. I've been trying to help someone who has had a a, a chronic problem with self-harming. It's a psychological problem and it's complicated and so on. But you notice the way the verse, the last verse of Proverbs ends. But whoever fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me embrace death. He warns of dangers to avoid. Forgiveness is a matter of life and death. Don't harm yourself. It's a dead end. And into that Jesus says, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. Well, have you found him? This wonderful Jesus. And you see what he says there in verse 35. Whoever finds me finds life. And look, and receives favor. You know, if you know your Bible, favor means grace. You find grace from the Lord. Grace to save you. Grace to keep you. Finding grace. Finding favor. It is not clever to reject Jesus Christ. It is not clever to sit on the fence with some intellectual superiority and say, until he answers all my questions and gets down on the fence and kneels before me, I might believe in him. That's the logic of that argument. It's not clever. It's foolish. It's foolish to neglect your soul. And what benefit? But death. Sometimes we say of people, don't you, uh, they're going out, it's a a cold, raw day and they haven't got to be sick. It'll be the death of you. You'll catch your death. A living death. So what do we say about this wisdom? Listen to his voice and you'll be blessed. Respond to his call and you will have life. Heed his warning. And you will avoid death. Jesus is the wisdom of God.